Hi, Housing News listeners. This is Alcena Lloyd. I'm a reporter on HousingWire's editorial team, and I'm also the producer of this weekly podcast. Today, I'm bringing you Episode 5 of Season 2, which features David Batney, the Executive Vice President of Capital Markets at Guild Mortgage. This week, HousingWire's CEO and President, Clayton Collins, sits down with Batney to discuss the housing market's lack of significant inventory, as well as America's budding market for manufactured homes. Additionally, Batney explains what the industry needs to do to get more first-time home buyers into homes. But before we listen, here's a word from our sponsor. Hey folks, this is Clayton Collins, the CEO at Housing Wire. And before we get started with this episode of the Housing News Podcast, I want to bring you some knowledge and insight from our sponsor, ArchMI. With interest rates at historical lows, refinances are booming. How do you win this business? It's simple. Lower the MI premium for your borrower. The newest feature of Arch's innovative RateStar platform, the RateStar Refinance Retention Program, makes it possible. Eligible borrowers with loans already insured by ArchMI can refinance into new loans with a lower MI premium payment. Give your refi customers a better deal. If you'd like to learn more about how RateStar powers possibilities, visit archmi.com forward slash refi. The Housing News Podcast is now a member of the Industry Syndicate. The Industry Syndicate has launched a podcast made for mortgage and real estate professionals by mortgage and real estate professionals. Download the app from Apple or Google and join the community today. Thank you for listening. And here's episode five of the Housing News Podcast. Hey folks, this is Clayton Collins, the CEO at Housing Wire, and we are back for another episode of the Housing News Podcast. And in our coverage, our, our newsroom, our reporters have been covering a lot of stories and research and analysis recently around housing affordability and the, the availability of housing stock. And as we look for solutions and information to make sure that there's plenty of housing inventory for this, this large wave of first-time home buyers and, and folks that are out in the market looking, looking for new homes, we, we wanna bring on people who have ex, expertise around certain areas and innovative solutions. And, and this week, we invited David Batney, the EVP of Capital Markets at Guild Mortgage, David has a really unique perspective and expertise around manufactured housing and why it is a viable option for many first-time home buyers. David, welcome to the Housing News Podcast. Thank you, Clayton. Happy to be here. We're thrilled to have you and are excited to dive deep into your, your background and then also talk about some of the headlines that our newsroom has been covering and kind of look for your additional layer of expertise and, in that conversation. But we'd, we'd love to get started with your story. So, David, how did you get started in the mortgage industry? I started in 1986 with First Interstate Bank, which was a California-based uh, bank that had a mortgage division. And literally my first day in the business, I didn't know how to spell mortgage. It was pointed out to me by the SVP who actually came in to ask me that question on my first day. So that was my embarrassing start into the you business. You leaving out that G? Was that the... I, I only had one G. I was more in the short version. <laughs> so, uh, But I worked in the capital markets group there as a bond trader and a hedger for the pipeline. So I, I learned the secondary side of the business early on. And then after First Interstate Bank, I went to Fannie Mae and worked in their West Coast-based region office, uh, handling pretty much all of the different West Coast lenders from the smallest to the medium to largest lenders for 22 years. And I was a director of single family business when I left Fannie Mae. 
And then after Fannie Mae went to Penny Mac, as they were growing their correspondent platform, and I was the chief product strategy officer at Penny Mac and worked with different agencies and private investors to create products for, for Penny Mac's uh, correspondent channel. And I left Penny Mac in 2015 and came over to Guild Mortgage. And at Guild, I'm responsible for capital markets, our credit policy group, our product strategy team, and our shipping and fulfillment team. So we're a, a large retail lender, and we're about probably $20 billion this year for originations. Wow. So jumping back to that 22 years at Fannie Mae, what were your main responsibilities and areas you were accountable for as the head of single family? And, and, and what years were you kind of in that role at, uh, as the head of single family at Fannie? So my title of director of uh, single family business was focused on the West Coast based lenders and responsible for the entire relationship. So it'd be servicing issues, origination issues, profile, pricing, products, pretty much any way that lender touched Fannie Mae, myself and the teams I worked with were responsible for managing that relationship. So back in the day, a lot of the West Coast lenders, there's some very large thrifts that were very uh, involved in a lot of interesting products. A lot of the pay option arms uh, began with West Coast based lenders. And so there was a lot of creative products and, and creative lenders back in the day in, in that sort of California lenders uh, geographic. Excellent. And then was like kind of looking at your, your background, were, were you in that role during the, during the housing crisis or was that a, or was that kind of a little bit before you uh, kind of stepped into that level of responsibility? I, I, I was, I had a, a front row seat to all the different activities that happened during the crisis and, and uh, it really it was a very interesting time to be at Fannie Mae very much. Now, I don't want to focus like too much on the past. I'm excited to get to the, the current situation um, that we're facing in the, in the housing market. But I, I do always find it really interesting that, that folks who had a front row seat during the crisis have, have a unique lens in the way they look at the market today. So I, I'm kind of really, really curious, like, what about being in that front row seat at Fannie at that time has, has changed uh, the way you operate today or changed the way you look at the mortgage market? I think the crisis really pointed out, I think a lot of people pre-crisis thought that the FICO score would be like the only important variable or the number one dominant variable in a loan credit decision. And that um, other issues like payment reserves and DTI were less, less important. And I think that the housing crisis really indicated and showed pretty clearly that you couldn't just use FICO as the only key factor in a decision. So kind of a move back to some of the basics of underwriting in terms of skin in the game, you know, looking at payment shock and making sure borrowers had reserves and sufficient income uh, as more important variables than they were pre-crisis was one, to me, one of the big takeaways from the, the sort of the, the credit philosophy that was evolving pre-crisis. And, and so what motivated the move to PennyMac and, and what was that transition like going from, from Fannie to, to PennyMac? PennyMac is, is a very exciting growing company. They, I, they were becoming quickly a leader in the industry, uh, one of the most uh, you know, successful uh, aggregators as they were uh, really sort of fill, filling a need in, in the industry where a lot of the traditional aggregators you know, weren't as in the markets as they were before pre-crisis. So um, it, it reflected private capital coming into the market and creating uh, products and services that fit a lot of uh, my 
BMA lender base. And so it was just an exciting time to join a company with a lot of very smart people and be a, a part of their growth story. And I think that topic of private capital is really interesting. It's a theme that our team at Housing Wire has been uh, covering and, and wanting to cover and even in a more meaningful way in, in recent years. Uh, with your exposure both on the, the GSE side of the capital markets world and the, and the, and the private capital side, what do, you, what do you anticipate for the kind of next few years in the housing industry? Do you see that wave of private capital continuing to grow? Uh, what, what are you anticipating in terms of uh, demand on the secondary side? Sure. It, there, there's definitely a lot of private capital that wants to come into the market. And the question is, in what form and how? You know? And so as the GSEs go through their reform, um, and the more definition uh, is, becomes more apparent to the industry in terms of where the GSEs will play and where the space will be for private capital to come in and play, as that creates more certainty for the private capital investors, that'll help bring in more capital. Uh, I think the other hurdle will be the PLS market really coming back, creating more standardization liquidity. And I think the QM patch also is a big part of it because today the you know, the uncertainty that private investors have to make sure loans comply with QM and, and Appendix Q creates a lot of uncertainty and, and that results in you know, many loans going through two or three full underwrites before they go into a private portfolio or into a private security. So uh, improving the QM patch or the QM definition would be a big step. And I think that would really help bring private capital in and kind of reduce some of the costs that exist today if a lender is trying to price loans through a private capital or PLS type execution. That's going through two or three underwrites sounds like an extremely expensive and onerous process to, to get quality product into, uh, into private capital portfolios. Uh, what type of definition does the, what, what type of definition do private, pri, does private capital need to, to make that more efficient around the, around the QM patch? Like what, what are the, what is the definition that the market needs today to improve that process? You know, one idea that seems to be getting some traction is the idea to move away from a DTI uh, concept. I mean, DTI is helpful in concept, but, but DTI is based on a borrower's gross income. And a lot of factors don't really get included in, into DTI that are important. You know, does a borrower live in a climate that has more or less expensive utility costs? Um, is the home they own uh, does it have certain qualities about it that make it you know easier or more expensive to maintain? So, DTI and concept sounds great, but in practice, it's not a good predictor of credit performance. So, I, I view that the the best answer, best solution, is to eliminate DTI and Appendix Q out of the equation completely for the definition of QM, and use a spread over the APOR rate uh, because that would the APR rate would more correctly capture the actual risk inherent in the loan and, and help the industry have a better uh, measurable, and more predictive tool. And that would create more certainty because it'd be very easy for private investors to do a quick test to determine if the note rate alone was within or not within a spread to the APR rate. And it would save those you know, double and triple underwritings from occurring. And at the end of the day, all those costs for the three underwritings all those costs get built in and passed on to the consumer. So anything that could be done to make the process more efficient and create more certainty for investors just leads to better pricing for consumers. 
Absolutely. So David, we really jumped straight into the nitty gritty of the secondary markets there. It kind of got, a, got away from, from your story for, for a minute. So uh, before, before we hop back into the, the nitty gritty and start looking at some of the headlines that are crossing our desk, uh, tell us a little more about yourself. Where, where, where are you based? Um, uh, how long have you been there? Like, where's home? Uh, I'm based in Southern California. I live in Pasadena and I work in San Diego. We're, we're headquartered in San Diego and it's just a, you know, has to be probably the best climate in the United States, especially in, in the winter. We can rub it into our peers in Chicago and New York. I noticed but, we're on video right now, even though we're only going to publish uh, the audio here, but I am wearing a sweater in Dallas and you are not. So I, uh, I imagine that yeah, we're getting a cold flash right now. I'm jealous of what you have in uh, San Diego. Yeah, but we do have cold flashes here. There's actually some days people actually wear long sleeve shirts. And so it does happen. Wow. Here we, we have our share of the cold. You probably can't even go to the beach on those days. You actually still can. That's what's nice about <laughs> Even even in December and November, you can be at the beach and have a nice, beautiful, sunny day. So not to rub it in, but it's pretty nice. Nice. And have you been out? And uh, I know I noticed when you were talking about your fanny experience, you were focused on West Coast lenders. So have you have you been out in Southern California for most of your career? Yes, I've lived in Southern California. Um, I've been involved in the MBA and a lot of committees and task force, and so I've, I've had a chance to work with uh, national lenders. But but most of my career has been on the West Coast. All right, excellent. All right, so before we move on to some of the headlines, I, I wanna ask a little more about kind of your, your day-to-day at Guild, and you have a, a unique experience and expertise in, in capital markets and all different sides of the secondary world, but when you are talking to your originators or originator origination leadership, what are the questions that they are asking you and, and how do you provide value in terms of knowledge or advice to those, those folks that are out there talking to referral sources and, and homeowners every single day? The, the key question that comes up is really what's the market doing? What are investors thinking? And you know, how, how do you talk and advise that borrower who's applying for a home purchase and trying to make the decision to lock their rate or not? So, what I try to do is do daily updates to our field every morning that show what the market did that day, what the market's looking at, what key factors will drive the market uh, in the next few days, next few weeks, and uh, help them just um, be more informed on what drives the market, how negative economic news will create downward pressure on rates, and positive news better than expected will create upward pressure on rates, and just help them be more informed so they can, you know, if they're borrowers reading a news headline about you know the fed may cut rates helping them understand what that means and how that does or doesn't impact mortgage rates and just try to create more awareness of the market and and help them help their borrowers make a more thoughtful decision on whether they want to float the market or lock and you know what's driving that market movement so going a little off script david can can we get today is monday november 18th we're recording this can uh, we get a, a little perspective of the, that you shared with your, your team this week on uh, what they need to know to, to know what the market's uh, going to do next and how they should be interpreting headlines to advise their, their borrowers? Sure. I, I would say the number one thing to be looking at right now is what happens with the trade talks between U.S. and China. Um, the market's expecting that some type of deal will be signed here in the next few weeks, but there's still lots of uncertainty about whether it does or doesn't happen. And is it just a very small deal that doesn't roll back tariffs or does it does it come through and, and, and tariffs do get rolled back? 
if a deal does get signed, uh, you know, stocks right now today are all-time highs. Uh, I think stocks will go even higher if that deal is signed. Um, the market's already pricing in an expectation that it will get signed, so it may not be a huge jump in stocks. Um, but if the deal does fall through, uh, I would see a, I think stocks will drop fairly significantly in, in one or two days, and you'll see a corresponding drop in interest rates and you know, probably a large bond market drop in price. Uh, or I'm sorry, rally in price and drop in rates in, in one or two days. So um, if I was a borrower in today's market, I think the key headline is volatility, just the uncertainty about what will happen with China trade talks. Uh, you have the snap elections going on in Britain and uncertainty about Brexit and how that might impact the European economy. So there's just a lot of uncertainty in the markets and there's a lot of cash on the sidelines. Um, the amount of cash sitting in the sidelines and money market accounts now is the highest it's ever been in the last 10 years. Uh, I think it's a little over 4 trillion. So it's, it's a lot of volatility and a lot of uncertainty. And if I was a borrower in a very volatile market, I'd be locking the market, not floating. So that's, that's my market prediction. So locking, Lock. not floating, even if we, even if we see that potential to see a, a downtick in rates on, on volatility this week. Yeah, that, that's the benefit. Just, with the you just can't bet on it. Yeah, with with the, with the free put option that borrowers get, you know, if you bet wrong and rates go, you can always refinance in the future a few months later. And if rates go the other direction, you're 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 glad you locked it in. If you did rates at the all-time low, if you know if rates do rise for the next few months, so I think most people view the economy. Most economists or investors view that the economy will probably slowly grow, but with very strong headwinds, with weak overseas um, economic growth. And you know some you know internal domestic you know headwinds a little bit as well, but I think with just the low unemployment rate and a really strong U.S. consumer and strong consumer optimism like we've seen in the last few weeks, uh, I think most people expect that there'll still be slow continued growth uh, for the next few quarters. But that's slow growth. With with headlines about recession risk, I think there's also a a home buyer and and borrower borrower mentality that there, there may be more affordable home prices on the horizon. Um, I think a lot of people are still kind of uh, tainted by what we saw 10 years ago, and that um, recessions mean that, the, that home values um, take a nosedive and there's gonna be value around the corner. Um, so when you're talking to originators who are, are seeing these headlines about uh, trade volatility and recession risk, uh, are they are they asking you about home prices, or are you primarily concentrating on rates right now? It, you know, very much home prices is also a top of mind issue. And what's interesting is the last recession was really led by housing, and it's possible we could have a future recession that's not led by housing, and housing might be a very slow follower. So, if you think of recession as being defined as two quarters or more of, of negative GDP growth. You know, we could have, and at some point we'll have a recession, um, but it's very possible that for other reasons, home prices may hold fairly solid. I mean, you might get, you would expect to have some dip in some markets in a recession, but it, there's a very good possibility it won't be like the last recession we saw for the first time ever in U.S. history, home prices decline in every market in the country at the same time. So it's possible you may see some parts of the country that are more impacted by recession have a little bit of a dip, but just due to lack of supply, and huge demand, um, you could still see a scenario where you could see flat or even still rising home prices in a recession period. It's certainly possible. 
I think that mention of lack of supply and rising demand is a great kind of pivot point to move the conversation to some of our, our top headlines from the Housing Wire newsroom this week. And uh, our, our team recently covered a survey from the National Association of Home Builders that revealed 80% of American households now believe the nation is suffering from a housing affordability crisis. And uh, we know home prices play an important part of that, but I think the biggest driver um, for, um, um, that survey response is inventory. So what is a housing economy to do when it does not have enough inventory to meet this first time homeowner demand? Yeah, the, the inventory really is the driver, the lack of inventory. So what happened is during the recession, so many construction firms and individuals were just wiped out. And so you had a lot of shift of labor from the construction market to other areas. And a lot of those people aren't coming back to construction. So in most markets, you have a shortage of first-time homebuyer homes as well as mid-level um, move-up homes. And then in most areas, you have labor shortages, which is driving up uh, costs. And then you throw in a couple of disaster areas where some of the, the floods or fires have happened and you have labor costs there, which have more than doubled in many of those markets. And so what's happening is if you're a first-time homebuyer looking at the market, you're seeing homes continually depreciate in price faster than your income is growing. And it just becomes more and more daunting to kind of jump on this moving train to get that first time home to own and kind of, you know, start your journey as a homeowner. So it's the, the lack of inventory is, 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 is key to drive up prices. And some of the Freddie Mac surveys have shown that the lower end homes are appreciating at almost double the rate of mid-priced homes just again to lack of, of, of inventory driving that up. So as we think about affordable lending challenges going forward, uh, really finding a way to address the lack of supply will be key to reducing the costs for first time home buyers to get into homes, getting more supply so the home prices aren't appreciating beyond their reach. All right, so now um, as, as one of the the largest lenders in the country and like your your business your origination volume is clearly driven off of homeowners and home buyers ability to to find the right house and transact what seat do you have at the table or what conversation do you have with the with the GSEs with regulators with home builders on on how as an industry we can support uh, more availability of affordable housing inventory it's it's one of our top areas of focus. We're, we're traditionally a very purchase-focused business uh, as, as a majority of what we do. So as we think about the borrowers of tomorrow, we're, we're very engaged with the GSEs, with private investors, with housing advocates, and other entities that are, are committed to this space. Um, you know, we have a coming wave of millennials. Um, the number of 26-year-olds and 27-year-olds in the country today is as high as it's ever been. There's never been as many people in the country who are 26 and 27 years old. And the average age for the first time home buyer historically has been about age 31. So there's this coming wave of millennials that in the next few years will be hitting that sort of peak home buying, you know, part of their, their life cycle. And the lack of supply is, is a huge factor. So there's other issues that affect affordability, such as student loan debts and people in the new gig economy who earn income in different non-traditional ways. So those are certainly key parts of what we need to do as an industry to focus on it. Um, minority home ownership rates are at all-time lows. The black home ownership rate is at the lowest it's ever been since it has been recorded. So there's huge need uh, with uh, 
first-time home buyers in the minority communities. But as a, as a general statement, uh, there's a lot of industry and housing policy focus, and a big part of that is on the on the supply issues. So the finding ways to address supply is a key part of our focus, both on trying to have the right products and create the right partnerships and entities that can help uh, you know, help drive and improve that affordability aspect. And one of the topics we want to tackle today, or what, what are some of those innovative products that can help increase affordability, not just on the, the loan product side, but also on the, on the housing stock side. And uh, we, we talk a lot about the, the single family residential market. Um, there's been uh, peaks and troughs in the conversation about will, will multifamily be a big solution um, to affordability and, uh, and inventory problems. And, and now there's this conversation that, that Gill is helping lead the way on around, around manufactured housing. And uh, I um, would love to kind of start with uh, you kind of giving our audience, giving our listeners like an, an overview of the, the manufactured housing market and, and how that you're currently working in that space to, to help first time home buyers um, identify four walls and a roof that, uh, that meets their needs. Sure. So historically, manufactured homes have played a small niche in providing affordability. Uh, the problem was that most of these homes look like a box. They're rectangular, they're square, they had a flat roof, and they looked like a mobile home. And so they didn't typically appreciate well in price. Um, they were usually made out of materials or hard to maintain. You know, some of these homes had plastic vinyl interior siding that's just very difficult to maintain. Um, they weren't produced with high quality. They had poor energy efficiency. Aesthetically, they weren't attractive. And in many cases, they were on leased land. And so really the person who bought the home wasn't really investing in real estate. They just had more of a wooden box that they owned. And so they typically didn't have great appreciation in price. They weren't always necessarily the best investment a person could have made. And so there was a lot of bias, whether with consumers, with lenders, that these really weren't a great solution for first-time home buyers or for affordability. So what's really changed is the industry has improved over the years in terms of the quality and aesthetics, but really the game changer has been Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac rolling out these new high-quality manufactured um, home guidelines. And what they've done is they've raised the bar and these new homes look just like a stick built. They have the same quality and it's aesthetic appeal as a stick built home. And in my view, this is a game changer for the industry and kind of opens a whole new uh, segment of the market that previously was, you know, limited just to, you know, very small homes that with very limited appeal for buyers. Are there specific manufacturers that our, our listen, listeners should take a look at to get a better feel for what this high quality inventory looks like? Yeah, Clayton Homes is the largest builder. And they're, they're a great example. Uh, you, know, you can look at a Clayton home and literally tour the home and have no idea it was a manufactured home. Uh, a lot of these homes are made with uh, either double or triple wide trailers that are combined on site. And they have a pitched roof, they have an attached garage. And when you walk in the front living room, they are large wide open floor plans, uh, really high quality finished materials. The interior walls are drywall. They're easy to maintain, um, high quality flooring, high quality cabinets and countertops. And so these homes aesthetically ex on the exterior as well as the interior, uh, unless you knew, you might think this was a stick built home. It, it doesn't stand out 
um, from the street view or any other angle to be a manufactured home. Are there any challenges related to zoning and deed restriction that, that first time home buyers that are interested in manufacturing, manufactured homes might, might face? And uh, we know that, I mean, we've, we've seen studies and heard that one of the challenges of the today's first time home buyer is uh, this kind of demand to be in certain locations, other locations that are close to work, close to family, uh, close to friends. Um, it does, do those two desires of having this, this beautiful new bill that might be manufactured and also being in the right location um, have any conflicts with each other? Very much. Um, there's still a huge amount of bias amongst consumers, um, amongst local planning and zoning uh, officials, as well as neighborhoods that manufactured housing is like a negative, that they're unattractive homes and they'll bring down the quality or the value of homes in a neighborhood. And so, uh, you know, there, that, that bias is a key headwind for this industry to move forward. And, uh, you know, the manufactured homes of today are night and day different from the old box homes of the past. And, you know, you know one way maybe we should all think about it is maybe not thinking these as manufactured homes and think of these more as modular homes. Mm -hmm. um, you know, these are factory built homes. They're built on a modular basis, but they're not a trailer home, they're not movable. You know, once they're set in, they're permanently affixed. And there's lots of advantages of building a home in a factory in a controlled setting that can produce very high quality at a lower cost. And I think if people see those advantages come through and realize these homes are night and day different from you know a loan or a home that might have been personal property on a foundation that could have been moved again in the future. Um, as that distinction becomes more clear to the industry, I think the local zoning officials will realize these homes are very attractive and they are, they are a very positive contribution to the community, especially in disaster areas where home prices and labor costs are through the roof. And you know, it's very expensive to build a home on an on-site stick-built process in many communities. And as a lender who's putting a stake in the ground around interest in this area, do you or does Guild have to play a role in that consumer or um, uh, municipality education, or do you see the Clayton Homes kind of leading that process, or or the or Fannie Mae? Like, how does the market get more educated on the the benefits and quality of this new breed of manufactured housing? In, in my view, it really requires a comprehensive effort by the entire industry. So it's lenders, it's investors. It's realtors, it's appraisers, housing advocates really need to, it's, it's kind of creating awareness about what these homes are because today, most borrowers, they think about buying a home. Most don't think about, should I get a manufactured housing home? They don't think about it. I mean, if they're out looking in the market for current built homes and that's their inventory to look at and see if they can find something they like and they can afford. And so the idea of, you're a first-time home buyer and you can find a vacant lot, either one you already own or one you could buy and have a home built and installed and you know be there and up and running in three months is not something the first, you know, the average home buyer is thinking about as an option. So really kind of creating that awareness is really the key for this to kind of be a viable solution for the industry. And, and what about awareness at the originator and real estate agent level is, uh, do you think agents are like having a conversation with their prospective first time 
homeowners right now and the agents educating them like, hey, you might at this at this price point in this location, you might want to consider a manufactured home or can I show you this manufactured home um, that that's for sale or uh, or do you think agents are just kind of putting their hands up right now and focusing their their prospective buyers on the, what they have, what they know and what they've done for years? Yeah, the hard part is there's not a lot of homes that are existing out in communities today to point to to give yeah. people a really good look. Uh, Guild did the first two loans that, that were done under the Fannie Mae program. And so, you know, we have two loans in Tennessee that we did as the first ones. We have others in the works. But really, for a consumer, for a local zoning official or a realtor, if they could see the actual home and actually do a walkthrough, that would really change people's opinions about what these homes are like. And so um, it'll take a while to create its own momentum. But as more and more of these homes get in the communities and the first time home buyer sees a home and thinks like, wow, this is a really attractive home. Um, they're super energy efficient. This is a home that for many reasons is attractive and should appreciate in value like a stick built. As more of these homes get out there and that awareness grows, the momentum will really begin to, to gain. So for Guild, will this origination volume need to come through partnerships and JVs with manufacturers, or is there a uh, is there going to be a, a a market where retail originators are are talking to to borrowers about manufactured housing programs? I think it's all of the above. We we very much want to create partnerships with with the builders so that they're aware that there's lenders like Guild out there that can offer financing for these because. The financing through Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac is at the same rate and price and eligibility as a regular stick-built home. So borrowers can do 3% down. They can have the same pricing and same rate as a regular stick-built home. And so once people know that, that's a big part of the equation. So we're out there committing to our realtor partners to make sure they're aware of these options. Because if you're a realtor and you have you know seven homes in your current market that are available for sale that might be good for a first-time home buyer, but you have 20 vacant lots, you could really increase the options you could show to a potential borrower. If you are aware of manufactured homes and you know how the process works to work with the local retailer and with a lender who knows how to do those loans, um, you could do a short-term construction loan for a couple months that could you know, pay for the cost to pay for the home, have it delivered and installed. And you know, literally you could have a brand new home up and running uh, three, four months later, which is much quicker than if you try to do a construction. Yeah, uh, I'm, I have a neighbor right now uh, doing a major renovation, and I think it's like an 11 month project, and that's not even ground up. Uh, so um, I kind of wish they were uh, doing some manufactured product right now to get the, the trucks off our street. But um, all right, David. So thank you very much for that background and education on the on the manufactured housing market. Uh, before we before we wrap this up, want to give you a, a, a little opportunity to brag. Uh, last week, our team covered the JD Power Lender Satisfaction Survey, and Guild was right up there up top as the, the number three lender in the country uh, for uh, borrower satisfaction. Um, so I want to get your perspective uh, culturally and in terms of priorities at Guild. How are you rising in the ranks and ma maintaining that high level of satisfaction uh, as, a, as a lender? We very much believe in the, the, the high-touch business model. Um, you know, the complexity of buying a home you know, is so great today in terms of all the issues a borrower faces, the different product choices they have available. And so our view is providing just the highest quality service 
and education to a borrower who's planning to buy a home is key to our success. So uh, we were very pleased to see that. This is the third year in a row that Guild's been ranked, you know, number three or better in the nation on, on customer satisfaction. So at the end of the day, it's, you know, that level of customer service is, is, is core to our business model in terms of just having the credibility to have people view that we're a trustworthy source and really experts on purchase loans and experts on first-time home buyers. So just that confidence that a new borrower has, that their lender has the right programs and products and will help guide them and educate them on the process is, is really key to helping those first-time home buyers get into that home. Excellent. Folks, that's David Batney, EVP of Capital Markets at Guild Mortgage. David, thank you for the knowledge and the time today. Clayton, thank you so much. Appreciate it. All right, that's a wrap. See y'all next week.